share um, some of my work and some of a bunch of other uh, excellent investigators' work um, regarding um, the use of donor human milk in very low birth weight infants. So I, I don't have any financial relationships to disclose, unfortunately. Um, and I work in a big NICU, a 78-bed level four NICU, and we use a lot of donor breast milk, over 75 liters a month. We don't have a protocol. If your 36-weeker is in our NICU because they couldn't eat very well and you're gonna breastfeed your baby and you'd prefer to have all human milk, you can have it. PICU, newborn nursery, if your baby has a, a hypoglycemia and you'd prefer a donor milk supplement to a formula supplement, you can have that. So we're kind of profligate uh, users of the stuff. Um, we really don't use formula for ELBW infants in our NICU. And from when I started tracking this in 2005 and the end of 2011, we had not used any formula for the extremely low birth weight babies in the first two months of life. Then we recruited a guy from Vanderbilt who started a 500 gram baby on um, preemie formula and we all were aghast, but uh, the baby did fine. And he's, he's got, he knows what to do now. Uh, we, do, we do use it in, uh, in, in, in research studies though. And I'm the medical director of a, of a milk bank uh, and the, the principal investigator of two trials of, of randomized trials of donor human milk um, versus preterm formula. One's the milk trial and one was sort of a preliminary trial to that. And then the other thing a lot of people ask me about is the human milk, human milk fortifier. And I don't use that in my practice. I, I've reviewed a lot of the research about it and given talks about it, um, but I, I don't use that stuff. So not because of any particular thing, just not in our practice. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about trends of use in, of donor milk in US NICUs, um, uh, including some of Dr. Hagedorn's research. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, nutritional compositional differences between donor and mother's milk, um, the impact of donor milk use on growth in these infants, developmental outcomes, and then on some of the more um, uh, small level um, uh, things in, in human milk, cytokines, chemokines, and growth factors that contribute um, to infection prevention and, and growth promotion um, in humans. And then we'll talk a little bit about the exclusive human milk diet and growth. And I always tell this story, so if anybody's heard me speak before, you can like look at your phone or whatever, but does anybody recognize the painting that is there? So that's a Tintoretto fresco called The Origin of the Milky Way. And what you can see here is that this is Zeus, and you know, Zeus had a, a strong, preference for having children with human women to demigods. Hera, his wife, was really not a fan of this practice, but he tried to convince Hera to nurse Hercules to make him stronger, that if he got Hera's milk, he'd be stronger. And she said, oh, you're crazy. Uh, so he snuck up on her while she was sleeping and put baby Hercules to her breast. And so she woke up and baby Hercules was nursing. So she flung the baby off and milk sprayed from her rest into the sky and that's where we get the Milky Way. So that's one of my favorite stories, gotta share that one. So if you ever wonder where the Milky Way came from, this is what the Greeks thought. So the use of donor human milk is rapidly increasing uh, in the United States, um, predominantly through um, the, the milk that's provided from the Human Milk Banking Association of North America. So they collect pooled, pasteurized um, milk uh, they screen donors, there's strict criteria. There are currently 26 banks um, in the organization. Three of them are in Canada, the rest are in the United States. Four more are in the developmental phase. In 2003, when we opened in Iowa, which was about six months before I came there, um, there were six, we were the sixth. So if you think about that, in just 
you know, 14 years, it's really rapidly increased. And the total volume of donor milk that has been dispensed is also rising rapidly. So 4.2 million ounces were dispensed by Himbana in 2015, and that had doubled since 2011 and quadrupled since 2007. So about every four years, they're doubling. It's like an exponential rise. There are smaller contributions um, with donor milk use uh, uh, in uh, NICUs in the U.S. from Prolacta, which is a, a commercial entity that mostly, I think, focuses on human milk, human milk fortifier, but they do have a, a straight donor milk product as well, and then Meadowlac, uh, which is the second uh, commercial bank that's coming online. So using the CDC MPINC uh, data, um, there was 25% usage of donor breast milk in 2007, and it went up to 45% in 2011, and that was in level three and four NICUs. And the increase in usage seems to be more predominant in the higher level NICUs, level three and four versus levels uh, two. And then this recent survey of medical directors, which is Dr. Hagedorn's work, um, showed that um, there was a reported 75% use of donor milk in level four NICUs and 53% in level three NICUs. And when I started researching this in 2004, um, it was extremely rare and thought to be unnecessary and potentially dangerous. Um, but now um, it's become uh, more or less a standard of care type intervention. But the thing I think we, and I think that's good, um, but I think we need to be aware of differences between donor human milk and maternal milk for these small babies because they're different. And I think if we don't recognize those differences, um, we might not be providing our babies with the best possible nutrition. And there's the other thing that is kind of heretical for me to say, but we have a gigantic body of evidence that there are multiple different health outcome benefits um, when you use maternal human milk in a very low birth weight and extremely low birth weight infants compared to infant formula preparations. But the body of evidence supporting donor milk is just not as broad and not as rigorous. And this was true in 2004, and this is still true now although there has been some work ongoing during that time, um, I think that the data are still a little bit underwhelming, so the story is not completely told. And then the picture there are some very famous donor milk recipients in, from Ontario. Does anybody know who those people are? Those, yep, yep, those are the Dion quintuplets and their poor mother. And these were 32-week babies that weighed between 17, or 750 and 1250 grams in 1932, born in rural Ontario. And um, they decided when they were all alive 12 hours after they were born that they should probably give them some food. So they started with sugar water. There's like a lot of the, the physician that took care of them has extensive documentation. And to save these babies, what they did was they got milk from women in Toronto and shipped it frozen by rail, um, five, five, five to 8,000 ounces over several months to where these, these babies were um, living. And then later the Canadian government exploited them quite a bit and used them for formula commercials and uh, put them on display, but that's not good. Two of these ladies are still um, with us, but it was, it was one of the first publicized uses of, of uh, donor breast milk in our, the 20th century. So now I'm gonna talk a little bit about Differences in the nutritional content, meaning protein and fat composition of donor milk that are a consequence of the processing. If you think about it, when a baby nurses from the breast, they get exactly what's being made directly from their mom to them. When a mom pumps uh, 
because she's uh, either she has a baby in the NICU or she's maybe a working mom, she pumps into something plastic or glass and then she feeds it to the baby, maybe out of the same thing or maybe gets transferred to something else made out of plastic and glass. And every time you transfer the milk to another container, you lose some fat probably, you lose some protein, you white blood cells will stick to glass, things like that. So in Brazil, where they have a strong um, history of milk banking, they looked at their milk in every step in the process. So raw, prior to pasteurization, after they pasteurized it, um, and then it, it's frozen. So then they thawed it after it was frozen and then fed it uh, not to real babies. They just did sham feedings. Um, one was by NG bolus, gravity bolus over 10 or so minutes, and then a continuous infusion, which was actually just an hour of infusion time. And looked at how that changed the content of fat and protein. And you can see that the raw um, milk had the highest concentration of protein and fat, about two gram per deciliter, about one gram per deciliter, and that's what we generally use as our standard estimate for protein content in human milk. And then every condition, it just drops. Not precipitously, perhaps, although currently, certainly this difference is very big in fat. The continuous infusion will decrease you by 50% of the fat gets stuck just stay stuck to the tube. Um, I keep showing this to my medical director, but he keeps insisting on one hour infusions for small babies. But uh, so the message really is that the handling of the milk impacts the nutritional content of the milk. And that's probably the main reason for the differences or one of the main reasons for the differences in, in protein and fat that you see. So. There have been some other studies about this. There was a, a, a large group of Swedish infants who were little, little babies, so 25 weekers, 750 grams, and 98% of the babies got only human milk, mom and or donor milk, for the first four weeks of life, and they studied the macronutrient content of the pooled milk through mid-infrared analysis, and they also looked at patterns of donor milk and maternal milk, and they found, like many others have, that the protein content of the maternal milk was higher than the donor milk, throughout the first four to six weeks. And then after that, they were pretty much the same. So this slide, I'll just go over briefly, just shows how things change. So for the whole first up to 28 days, pretty much everybody got all human milk, but the proportions changed. So in the beginning, everybody was kind of getting both, um, but over time it switched to where the babies were getting predominantly mothers, only mother's milk, with fewer babies receiving only donor milk and fewer uh, receiving a combination. But then, like many of us do, they see a fall off in human milk receipt after that first month and in through the second month. So you can see that the formula, um, the combination of formula and human milk increases through here. And that was, that might have been due to um, the fact that they just stopped using donor breast milk at some point. Um, but that's a pattern that I think all of us practicing neonatologists and neonatal dietitians see as well. So then as to the protein and energy content or the macronutrient and energy content, they looked at single donor pools, which we don't use. We use um, multi-donor pools in the US and multi-donor pools and found that the protein was closest to maternal milk protein, which is 1.6 gram per deciliter in single donors uh, samples. And it gets lower when you pool a bunch of donors together and those differences are significant. And then less difference in fat. These are statistically significant differences. I would say they're not clinically significant differences and the carbs are all the same. 
And because of the, the KCAL content doesn't really change much either, except that the maternal milk is, is higher, 71 gram per deciliter. So it is different. And protein is the, is the growth limiting nutrient in these babies. So that's the one that I talk about the most. And that's the one we focus on the most in treating babies in Iowa. And this is a similar study um, looking at gastric emptying, uh, but they measured the same thing. They looked at unfortified pasteurized donor breast milk, which they got 1.3 grams per deciliter versus two in, in mothers. So that was a pretty high protein samples for the 17 moms that they had. Um, and they just looked at how the, how the nutritional content changed with adding particular fortifier. So here they actually do pretty well. You know, 2.9 gram per deciliter protein intake should give the baby three and a half um, gram per deciliter, three and a half, or gram per kilo per day, which is, you know, our lower end of our target. So that's a good thing. But the donor milk wasn't, wasn't quite up to snuff. And I think that's what, um, that's what is happening when we see the lower growth that a lot of people report. So then there's other things in human milk that are probably important, um, including DHA and the other long chain polyunsaturated fatty acids, um, which have important um, implications for brain and eye development. So infant formulas since the early 2000s have been enriched with DHA um, at either the US breast milk mean level, which is 0.14% of the total fat, or the worldwide mean level of 0.32%. One company does one, one company does the other. I don't remember who's who. Um, so uh, a fellow and I, several years ago, looked at the DHA content of donor milk. We wanted to see if pasteurization changed that, and then also if, um, if it was different by milk bank. So we got samples from several milk banks, and the, this is the worldwide mean um, based on large studies. Um, and then this is the United States, uh, uh, oh no, that's the worldwide breast milk. This is the infant formula. We actually tested um, using our gas chromatographer samples of the one that was supposed to be 0.32 and we got pretty close to what that was supposed to be, but we figured let's just see what's actually in there. And then you can see that in California, the California milk bank and the North Carolina milk bank, their milk had very close to the US mean of 0.14 and Texas did a little better at 0.2, and this is Iowa. So this is the same as rural Pakistan, if you look at the, um, the worldwide <laughs> data that Dr. Kletko uh, has published, and that this is his work, this number. Um, because fish is not part of our standard diet. Um, we're in the middle of the completely landlocked, this is the flyover area of the US. I encourage you to land, it's actually pretty nice. But, um, and even game fish are, it's not so much of a regular part of the diet. So we were, we, were, we were sort of expecting it would be lower. We weren't necessarily expecting it would be that much lower. So something to keep an eye on if you know where your donor milk is coming from compared to what your base diet of your moms are. Uh, and then human milk oligosaccharides, which are very important and a very hot level, a hot area of really interesting research, it seems like that's also different in um, uh, maternal milk versus donor milk. And so um, there was a comparison made of uh, the HMOs in 31 pools from the San Jose Mother's Milk Bank. And then they compared that to 26 samples of milk from moms of NICU admitted infants. And they found that the, the total, total amount of oligosaccharides in donor milk was lower 
And that's a little bit surprising because um, pasteurization should not affect that. And I don't think that, that those little sugar molecules should get stuck to plastic either, but it was lower. And then most of those HMO structures that they were targeting that are known to be um, biologically active, helpful molecules were, were lower in the donor milk and then a few were higher. We don't really know how significant that is, but it opens up this idea of, do infants benefit from getting their own mother's pattern of HMOs? Because that's an individual thing that varies from woman to woman. And it varies with secretor status as well, which is something that Dr. Brunel is, um, has some fascinating ideas about that we're gonna talk about more, she and I. Um, and this is the figure from that. It's a little bit busy, but what I put this on here to show is that the total amount Although these don't look that different, the spread for the donor milk is really concentrated down here and the maternal milk um, is higher. And this is, this is the DSLNT, which is one of the earliest identified molecules that's thought to be quite bioactive and helpful. But you can see that, you know, this guy's higher. What, what does that mean? And, you know, this guy's higher and then these, this guy's lower. So they're different. Um, and I think that's important. We don't know why or if that's, if that had, what implications that might have, but I think it deserves further um, investigation. And then the cytokines and chemokines that are present in milk also differ. And this makes sense um, to, uh, due to both the timing of the milk that's donated typically and then our um, handling. So we hold or pasteurize the milk, we, we heat it up to 60 degrees Celsius for 30 minutes, and that will denature some proteins. So all these cytokines, chemokines, growth factors, secretory IgA, all that stuff is protein. Some of it gets inactivated. And the milk that moms are donating to us are typically milk that's being produced um, between three and nine months after the baby's born. It seems like a lot of times right around three months, moms realize, whoa, I have a freezer full of milk that I don't think I'm gonna be able to get to because I'm doing well. It tends to be the moms that do very well. So this study, um, they looked at levels of growth factors, cytokines and chemokines every week uh, for uh, pooled samples um, that they got from moms of 45 NICU babies. So they pooled a week's worth of milk and tested that. And then they looked at um, contemporaneous pools of pasteurized donor milk that were being used in the same unit dispensed from their local milk bank. And the, the babies that we're talking about are sort of like, um, you know, medium-sized preemies to, to, um, to my uh, understanding anyway. But I take care of all the little ones all the time, so I think these guys are pretty big. But um, the levels of these things in the donor milk were more like the, the milk of the preterm moms at six weeks. So these are the, the, the preterm mom samples here. And we have IL-10, IL-4, IL-6, and tumor necrosis factor alpha. And you can see that levels are quite high early after birth, after the mom delivers, they fall um, after that. That's because the breast is really stupid here. It lets all sorts of things through that it won't let through later. The gap junctions aren't really mature and um, you get, ex and that's evolutionarily helpful. Um, so then as time goes by, the levels go down, but the donor milk really, particularly for IL-10 is nowhere close to any of the checkered boxes for the mom's milk and the, and the same thing for IL-4. So if those components and the ratio of those components to one another have important implications for immune function and um, infection uh, mediation, uh, it's, it's different. Nobody knows what that means, but does, it might mean that 
you have too much of some pro-inflammatory and not enough of some anti-inflammatory cytokines. So there's been some uh, concern and lots of ongoing research about that. So then if you get down to, okay, all that sciencey stuff about what's in there, um, one of the big things that we wanna assure is that we can grow babies with this because growth, uh, stunting of growth causes poor neurodevelopmental outcomes and causes life, probably lifelong implications for metabolic syndrome. So the whole goal is we gotta make the babies big. And there really haven't been a lot of targeted growth studies. So um, the first uh, study that Richard Chandler published in 2005 where he randomized babies to donor milk or formula for any milk their mom didn't have and followed them out through about hospital discharge found that the weight, the rate of weight gain during their study period, which was not the whole hospitalization, which is why these numbers seem um, pretty good, uh, was lower. So the mom's milk babies grew the best, the formula babies grew the second best, and the donor milk babies had the slowest growth. Um, head circumference and length were similar for the donor milk and preterm formula, so it was mostly a weight effect. So we tend to like try to console ourselves a little bit and figure that if their heads didn't weren't smaller, maybe their brains are okay and it's not a big deal, but I think it's probably something that we shouldn't uh, tolerate if we don't have to. And then I did a growth study of babies at the beginning of our um, milk bank usage because I wanted some formula babies. And so to get formula babies, I had to go back to 2003. And so um, I looked at all of our babies that we had that were less than 1250 at birth and who we got with, when they were 24 hours old or less. So babies that, however they grew, it was our fault or our accomplishment rather than um, transferred. We get a lot of tran late transfers for complications from uh, other units. So we had 171 babies and then we calculated how much um, human milk they got in their diet and then how much of that was donor or human milk. And so these were uh, 27 week babies, a little bit under a kilo, AGA at birth. So their birth weight Z score was minus 0.4, so less than one standard deviation under the mean. We fed them relatively early um, on day two. Now we're more like day one. It took us a long time to fortify their milk based on our current practice anyway. And then they had their central lines, their TPN for about three weeks. And you can see that most of the babies got mostly human milk. So there were only 10% of the babies that got less than 25% human milk. 18% got between a quarter and a half. And then there was 72% that got more than half uh, human milk. The neck rate was low. It's always been low um, uh, at Iowa. And then we had relatively typical rates of some other um, uh, morbidities of prematurity and the baby stayed uh, kind of a typical uh, amount for kids that premature. So when you look at, the thing that I used was the change in the weight Z-score from birth to discharge, because you know if you maintain the, the uterine growth rate, the Z-score should stay flat. It never stays perfectly flat. But in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was reported that you know, 80% of infants in the neonatal research network were going home, were having 36 week z-scores that were minus two um, and so that and that was a call to action to really work on our nutrition so I wanted to see how we were doing here and down here you have all the babies which is this line here everybody went down uh, the babies who got the least amount of human milk which means the most formula were down here uh, and then you know these two lines down here are the ones who got um, 
at least half. And so you can see they both go down and greater than 75% seems to go down a little more. The, the, the changes aren't statistically significant, but it certainly seems to be going down. And then when we separated out the babies who got more than 75% human milk, and it was mostly more than 90%, we had like, a, I think there were like three between 75 and 90. Uh, you can see that those who had mixed maternal and donor milk had the least um, uh, fall off, and they were the babies that got more formula. And then the most fall off was in the babies who got mostly donor breast milk. And once again, this is not a statistically significant change, but the sample size is low. And so I would argue that that's something that we need to pay attention to. Uh, what we did find though, which was good, was that our infants that were AGA at birth were generally AGA at discharge, but they'd lost half a standard deviation or so. And the SGA babies generally stayed SGA. So we didn't have a really high success rate in getting them back up. So that I think raises the issue that you need to pay attention to this. And this is the same group of babies. Um, so you can see that their discharge weights uh, were, you know, two to three kilos and their discharge weight Z-scores where their birth weight, the birth Z-score was minus 0.4 are lower. So, and lowest in here and least low there. Um, and then the, the proportion of infants that were SGA discharge was also different and seems to think that there's a potential issue with these babies. Um, we uh, wanted to look at what level of human milk fortification we were using because a lot of people think, oh, fortified human milk, you go to your, um, your 24 kcal, your four packets of whichever, whichever human milk fortifier product you're using, and then that's what you do. And then if that doesn't work, then you, um, uh, you switch them to formula or you just say, well, that's how kids grow when they're on human milk. But just like here, where they do a lot of additional fortification, we found that really these kids almost always, this is 87% of the babies, got milk that was at least 27 kcal. Um, and the way that we do that is, is additional human milk fortifier at that time and still. So six packets per hundred. And then this is uh, this uh, recipe that includes term formula concentrate and uh, a single unit, a single protein modular, which at the time would have been beneprotein and now would be a liquid uh, modifier. And the mother's milk kids, still the vast majority of those kids got much higher calorie <coughs> milk than you would think of when you think of standard you know, fortified milk. And then the change in the weight Z-score from birth to discharge, the donor milk babies lost almost a whole standard deviation, whereas the other babies were more like half. And this is pretty good, honestly, um, in if you look at other studies. So I think we need to be concerned about this potential issue with growth. Um, and donor milk, it may, this is another French study that shows that um, donor milk may differ and babies may need uh, different things for growth given which one of these things that they're using. So these were babies that were 32 weeks or below, they were French, and they looked at growth based on the composition of the diet, what proportion of the diet was what different types of human milk. So they took babies that were about 28 weeks and about a kilo, and they started studying them right here, which was when their parenteral nutrition was over. And they studied them until they were 32 weeks PMA or 1400 grams. And so this was their study period, exclusive human milk feeding. And they found that the 
the weight gain was lowest in the babies that got less than 20% mother's milk, which means 80% donor milk, and better in the babies that were between 20 and 80%, and then the ones that were greater than 80% had the highest. And so although these median numbers are pretty similar, you can see that, the, um, that this guy extends out farther, suggesting that they had more babies with higher growth rates. Length didn't seem to be affected. And so compared to the babies who got greater than 80% mother's milk, the babies who got less than 20% mother's milk grew five, five gram per kilo per day slower. So that adds up. Um, and they adjusted that for their gestational age of birth, first day, you know, feeding tolerance measures, the weight at the first um, uh, study day, and then use of prenatal steroids. Um, so a fairly robustly adjusted model, although they're small babies, so I don't know how they put all those things in there, but. Um, so growth might be an issue. We can overcome these issues, but we have to recognize that they're present. So the big elephant in the room, or the big question is, is donor milk good, bad, or indifferent for the neurodevelopmental outcomes of these babies? So, you know, we know that maternal milk is associated with better developmental outcomes out to age eight, at least, um, than using formula, at least in the 80s when those infants were recruited that are now adults. Um, but is donor milk more like formula, more like mother's milk? Is it in between somewhere? You know, those are the questions that still remain to be answered. And we have a limited amount of information. So this is a very small group of babies that I was able to find who had been in an, in an inhaled nitric oxide trial at Iowa in the mid 2000s, so we had Bailey scores on them. And we found that the kids who got 100% maternal milk and 100% donor milk, their Bailey scores were not awesome, but they were not different. And these kids were sick because they were, they qualified for an inhaled nitric oxide study. So then recently there's a group from Tufts that has a study that I think should be published soon. I've reviewed it for publication twice. So I'm hoping the next, this next uh, journal will take it. But they did a retrospective cohort study uh, that I think took place around the time they started to institute donor breast milk in their unit. So they, 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 they separated them out into mostly donor milk, which was greater than 50%, greater than 50% or all formula. And it looks like it's a convenient sample and there's some matching, but because it was only an abstract, the, how that was done isn't published or available yet. So they had 27, 29, and 25 babies. Their follow-up rate wasn't great. It was 65% at age two, but this was done retrospectively. So um, all that data was available when they started. And they found a dramatic um, difference in growth, very, uh, very much more poor growth and very much lower Bailey scores. And this is the only group that's reported this kind of difference. So you can see that their babies who got the Baileys uh, in the donor milk group have, love, have Bailey scores that are all in the impaired range and very much lower than infants who got either maternal milk, preemie formula, or maternal milk. And they speculate that this is due to the growth difference. Um, it's hard to know because I think that the indications for using donor milk, the babies that got donor milk versus the babies that got mother's milk, might be babies that differ in other ways. Maybe they were sicker, different educational backgrounds of their families, you know, who knows. But it, it was compelling. Uh, it's quite a difference. 
and I think it highlights the importance of continuing to finish out and publish the randomized trials that are being done. So there's three randomized prospective blinded trials of donor milk um, looking at developmental outcomes at um, age two-ish, adjusted 22 to 26 months. Uh, and that is the Domino trial, which was published on election day of this year, and a trial that I did um, that should be published in the next couple of months, and then the milk trial, which is my big trial that I don't know when we're gonna finish, but, but we're making good progress. So the Domino trial, they studied uh, Deborah O'Connor and Sharon Unger. They recruited 363 very low birth weight babies in Ontario, mostly in the greater Toronto metro area. And this was a pragmatic study. They asked all the moms, if you don't have enough milk, could we randomize your baby to donor milk or formula? So they didn't, they didn't target babies who weren't getting mother's milk. They just asked all the moms. And in a, in, a, in a world where breastfeeding is so prevalent, which is an awesome world, we should all want to live there, um, this is the, best, the most pragmatic way to, to, to do this. So what they found was that 28% of the babies they randomized only got their mom's milk throughout the whole thing. And then the proportion of milk fed as study diet to the babies who actually got study diet was only about 60%. So this study really ended up looking at when you supplement maternal milk with donor milk or formula, is there a neurodevelopmental difference at age two? And they also used specific, they didn't use um, general use donor milk, which is something that's not well highlighted in the paper, but I think is important. Um, they got milk from donors who were less than three months postpartum and at least 20 kcals per ounce tested but the analyzer at the Mother's Milk Bank of Ohio. So it all came from one bank and it was kind of, you know, supposed to be better than average donor milk. Um, and what they found was that there was no difference in the Bailey scores. So it's like an IQ score, 100 is average. We don't worry until it gets less than 85 and we really worry if it's less than 70. So in the donor milk group, the cognitive outcome uh, subscale, which was their primary outcome, was about 93 in the donor milk kids and 95 in the formula kids, and no difference in either um, an, a model that adjusted for center and um, sex or a model that adjusted for a million different um, covariates. So mom's degree, per percentage of total feeds for each infant, all these recruitment center, birth weight group, maternal education, so a lot of different things no difference really. Uh, motor and language were secondary outcomes. And then they, then they split them into these two groups, which we as neonatologists are common outcome groups used for research, which is a, a, a scale of a score of less than 85 on one of these tests and a score of less than 70. And the less than 70 kids have, um, have significant impairment typically. The kids that are around 85 often function within the normal spectrum of school and um, and that sort of thing. But they found, interestingly, that the babies that got donor milk had a little bit higher incidence of having this moderate impairment, but no difference in the severe impairment. So this is one of many analyses done as a secondary um, hypothesis generating sort of thing. So I don't think you have to look at that and say, oh, well, clearly donor milk, you know, was bad for their cognitive outcomes. But it, 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 um, Think it's something to pay attention to for for future studies so no difference in the risk of the significant impairment and then they did other outcomes which i think are important as we start using this all the time for safety so um, growth was very similar and both gro groups lost about half a standard deviation z score which isn't too bad 
And then for neck, they found that the formula group incidence of neck was 6.6% and the donor breast milk group was 1.7%, and that was a significant difference. And that the study was not powered to detect a difference in neck, it's a secondary outcome, but I think it's interesting because human milk is one of the things that, that we feel is a, especially maternal milk, is a good preventative strategy for the prevention of neck. And I don't know any neonatologist that doesn't hate neck more than just about any other disease because you can't predict it and it's awful when it happens. So this is interesting. It deserves future study. So I wrote an editorial for this that was published with the thing, if you want to read it, that just explains the same stuff I just told you. But once again, we just need to keep working on this. And then the Dutch tried to look at if early um, donor milk exposure or exclusive human milk exposure um, versus formula would um, improve um, uh, death and infection outcomes. And they found that most of the kids got pretty much all maternal milk but for that small supplement, it didn't seem to matter. So the, the bad outcome occurred in 44% of the babies fed preemie formula and 42% of the babies fed donor milk. So then I did a, a randomized trial that's actually pretty much the same as the Domino trial. Deb O'Connor and I had never met until we presented our results last year, but we're gonna do an individual patient um, meta-analysis combining our data because the, the, the um, methods are so similar that I think it should be a nice valid study. So I also used the same thing, the cognitive subscale on the Bailey Scales of Infant Development, third edition, assuming that, you know, hypothesizing that the babies that were randomized to the donor milk would have higher scores on that than the babies fed formula. And we took, um, we had two NICUs involved, uh, our NICU in Iowa City and a large level three in Des Moines, that's a pediatrics unit. And we took babies under 1500. We took babies that were inborn or admitted by transport at less than 48 hours of age. Once again, it was our, our job to either mess them up or make them better. Um, and then we wanted babies that only got maternal milk prior to randomization. And then they didn't have any um, really severe um, anomalies and there had been no decision made to, to limit their therapy with the thought of them having a short life. So then we did donor human milk or preterm formula for all feeds when maternal milk was unavailable. And we did that with um, uh, uh, blinding. So we used the intention to treat principle for analysis, but we had our diets mixed by study personnel and delivered to the bedside in amber syringes. The nurses loved this study because they didn't have to mix the feeds themselves. And, uh, uh, and nobody tried to taste it or pour it out or anything. It was interesting, the nurses were like, well, we're gonna know what everybody's on. You just, you just have to know that. And I was like, well, okay, just don't tell me. Um, but I did a survey at one point to see if they really did know. And so we did a survey and we had the diet mixer, uh, my research assistant, look at that with the code. And they were only right about 55% of the time. So they, they, they thought they would know from the residuals and the stools of the babies, but they didn't. So we gave them their, their study diet from randomization, which was within the first seven days of life, to either full oral feeding, so PO, or 90 days. And then we did follow-up visits at not at four, nine to 12, and 18 to 22 months adjusted. And I'm just gonna go through the developmental outcomes today. There's all sorts of growth and other things that we've done too, but um, we had growth measurements done at 18 to 22 months. We had a Bailey three done by our, our NICHD NRN gold standard certified examiner. So that was pretty cool, all the same person. Um, I did the neurologic exams and I'm the, sta I'm the standard um, at Iowa for that. And then there's a questionnaire we did about medical service usage and rehospitalization. And we were all blinded to the study diet stuff. 
I didn't, I didn't break the blind until I started the data analysis. Like I actually did the preliminary data analysis and then broke the blind. Um, so SAS, we use SAS and some pretty, pretty basic uh, uh, analysis uh, things. So we got 125 babies, 98 were at the University of Iowa, 27 were at Mercy Hospital in Des Moines. We followed up 78% of our survivors. So it's not awesome. The NRN likes us to do 90. So we lost a few more than I would like and four babies died, two at each center. We had eight babies that had grade three or four IVH diagnosed before a week of age. And we excluded those because I don't think that the study diet that they might've gotten in the first few days would impact that. But I did run the stats the other way for sensitivity, didn't, didn't make a difference. So medical outcomes, these were little-ish babies and we had kind of had a, not as many boys as girls for whatever reason, the neck wasn't different. Um, and really, we didn't have any difference in our typical um, uh, poor, you know, morbidities of prematurity. Not that male sex is a morbidity of prematurity. But, um, so that was like, well, the randomization worked, basically. And there's no excess of some of these other bad things in, in one or the other um, groups. So for the Bailey scores, we had um, the cognitive score, which is the main thing we were looking at, the medians are actually nice in the normal range. So 95 for the donor milk, 90 for the preemie formula group. Note that's not a significant difference and similar for language and motor. Um, and then I looked at everybody, I got the population median and looked at how many babies in each group were above that median. And it, this is like a very weak signal, but actually the donor milk babies were more likely to have beaten the average or beaten the odds to have a little bit higher um, cognitive subsale score, and that uh, has a somewhat statistically significant uh, p-value. And they were all pretty good size at 36 weeks. This is like minus one for their t-scores. So then I did a multivariable regression adjusting for male sex and gestational age. We don't have too many babies, so we can't adjust for like 12 things or anything. But um, the babies in the donor milk group were 2.6 times more likely to, to beat that mean. Median, excuse me, beat that median. And the confidence interval is kind of broad, so how important this is, I don't know, but it is a little bit of a signal that they certainly didn't do any worse, um, and there might be some advantage. So, um, and these are just, this is not significantly different, but you can see that in general, the babies that had the, the in the formula group had lower scores. Um, and so we're doing additional analysis on looking at rates of growth and trying to adjust for rates of growth to see if, uh, if they were different. But this was a prospective randomized trial. It was blinded. We had a good Bailey examiner. She's fantastic. Um, but we were limited by the small sample size and the lower follow-up rate. And then also that the babies received various amounts of study diets. So we have the similar issue with the Domino trial. Um, so the infants that got donor milk um, and preterm formula had similar scores. And one good thing was that the median scores for the whole population were in the normal ranges. Uh, and then the babies that got donor milk were more likely to achieve a cognitive score above the study population median, um, but we need bigger and better studies to answer this question, which leads to, do we still need to work on this? And don't we know that donor milk is the ideal substitute for maternal milk? I don't think we do. I think the ideal substitute for maternal milk is maternal milk. And I think we spend a lot of money trying to figure out what's the best thing to do when we don't have maternal milk and we don't spend enough money 
helping moms actually make their own milk, which in the long run is the easier thing to do. Um, but what we're doing now, that I think this will probably be the, um, the final uh, trial, the biggest trial done for this. This is the milk trial. It's not a tortured acronym. Everybody thinks there has to be tortured acronyms for these big studies, but it was about milk. So I decided we were gonna call it the milk trial. Uh, and so we're getting, we're, this is a little bit different in that we're particularly targeting extremely low birth weight infants who get no or minimal maternal milk. And because the NRN has 2,000 ELBW infants a year, we can find this subset and it's big enough to study. So we're randomizing those babies to donor milk or preterm formula for 120 days or their hospital stay and the same primary outcome, the Bailey 3 score. Um, and then we also have neuro uh, exam and you know all sorts of secondary outcomes pre-specified. So as of last week, we had 379 infants randomized out of a target of 670. And our current follow-up rate for kids that are in the follow-up window is 94%. So, but the NRNs, we, the, it's a, it's a well-oiled machine for getting them to come back, which is great. So we also have 90 babies that never got anything other than study diet. Uh, the other babies get small amounts of maternal milk, donor milk or formula, whatever their unit is using until they meet the, the eligibility criteria, which is we've tried to make a score that would show that the mom was unlikely to ever make a significant amount of milk within the, and we analyze that at about day 14. And then we'll put them in, mom's only making less than three ounces a day. And that's worked out well. We actually have not had any issues where a baby was randomized for very low maternal milk and then all of a sudden mom had a full milk so donor milk is not exactly like mother's milk. All these very, you know, probably important bioactive compounds are different. The macronutrient composition is different, particularly the lower protein, the protein is the growth limiting nutrient in these babies. LC pooches are lower. You know, the yeast may result in growth compromise compared to mother's milk, although that's not universal. So we should probably consider donor milk as a separate diet from mother's milk with the potential need for additional interventions. And so I encourage people to think of we have babies on mom's milk, we have babies on formula, we have babies on donor milk, and we should be looking at that together. But I think it can be used 